And what a beautiful morning to be discussing the helmet of salvation. It's spring out there, it smells like spring, it's fresh, and we're speaking about new life. It's very fitting. I'm really excited about the passage we're covering this morning, and um, something has occurred to me is that the whole idea of our salvation is one of those things that um, there's not been a really defined definition for our culture, I guess, as to what it looks like to call themselves a Christian. If you were to ask people in Canada, many people would say they are Christians, but it sort of means a lot of different things in a lot of different people's minds. And so I think it'd be a good idea to have a clear definition of what salvation looks like, what it sort of looks like to be assured of your salvation, and what Jesus had to say about the topic of salvation. Because here's the thing, at the end of the day, the helmet of salvation is vitally important. And here's why. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, put on a breastplate of faith and love. But then Paul says, and as a helmet, put on the hope of salvation. This idea that it is critically important to protect your mind, your thoughts from discouragement and things leading to an, an, an assurance of your faith is so vitally important. I remember we were, um, my grandmother was about to, to pass away and, and me and Melissa went to Calgary to visit her and, and she was just so full of, of joy in some of her last days and Melissa offered to pray for her and so we just sort of sat beside her and we held her hands and she looks at me and she says, I am just so excited to see Jesus. She was just so sure of her salvation. And in her darkest times, this salvation was a helmet for her. It protected her mind. It protected her from discouragement. And it was a beautiful thing to witness. Because at the end of the day, only secure relationship, relationships can flourish. If we're not sure where we stand with God, then our worship will not be out of love. It will be out of fear. And if we're not sure where we stand with God, then our, our faith will be based on works. It will be shallow. When we sin, we will wonder if he's still there. When we sin, we won't have an assurance of unbelievable salvation that comes from the Savior. So this topic, the helmet of salvation, is very important for us as a body to walk in faith and in fullness of salvation. It is a really important topic. So let's just spend a few moments in prayer recognizing that the wisdom of man is perishing and it's foolishness, but the wisdom of God that stands the test and only things that can be discerned by our spirit are things that the Holy Spirit teaches. So let's just spend a moment and pause and ask the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us and just reveal truth. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you'd reveal your heart. God, I pray that we would be a people that truly would wear the helmet of salvation, God, that we would have a secure relationship, God, based on a deep love, God, the adoption that you speak of, God. Lord, I pray that we would be free from discouragement, God. Lord, I pray that we'd be free from anxiety that is created. When we don't know where we stand with you, Jesus, I pray that we could walk out of this place completely, 100% free, God. And Lord, that our relationship with you would just flourish, God. God, we trust these things to you and we love you. Amen. Sometimes the idea of salvation that we see here in the West differs from the salvation that we see in other parts of the world. Many of you saw the news last week 
100 refugees fleeing across the Mediterranean from Libya in a dinghy, and their dinghy sprung a leak. And one of the Christians decided that he would pray. One of the Muslims on board got very angry at this and said that on this boat, we only pray to Allah. So he threw the Christian over, and then he asked for everyone else on the boat to self-identify if they were a Christian or not. And 11 others identified as Christians, and they were thrown overboard. This is something that we see all across the world today. With ISIS, what they typically do is they go from village to village, and they ask people if they are Christians. And the people that are shot or killed are people that self-identify. There's this idea that they are willing to count the cost, and they are willing to lose their life for it. In India, when you get baptized, they ask a slightly different question than we ask here. We ask, have you decided to follow Jesus? There, they ask if you've decided to follow Jesus. And on pain of death, do you commit not to recant? It's just a different posture of salvation. It's slightly different. At a Bible camp... In Turkey, there was a, a young man who was a junior high student named Neki, and he received Jesus. And at the end of the camp, his family never came to get him. And some of the counselors drove one of the 15-passenger vans to bring the other kids home. What happened is, as they were out in the city, their van got taken hostage by extremists so they could get into the camp. And when the camp van arrived back in camp, they found Neki. The extremists grabbed Neki, and they asked him, if he was a Christian, and he said, yes, I, I am a Christian now. I became a Christian this week. And they said, well, if you don't recant your faith, you're going to lose your life. And Neki looked at them, and he said, I am a soldier of Christ. And they shot him. This idea of salvation looks quite a bit different in different parts of the world. One week on the ark, there was these group of boys from Lake Country, and these boys I love these boys. They were so curious. They were so full of life. And they were asking lots of questions. And I prayed for them. And I spent tons of time with them. And Thursday night, we presented Jesus to them. And they didn't seem to have much, much interest. And later that night, as all the kids had gone to bed, they came down to the campfire where I was sitting and asked to talk more about Jesus. I knew that they were stalling, that they were just not wanting to go to bed. But I'll receive that invitation any day. You want to talk about Jesus? Let's stay up all night. So we sat around the campfire. And... Um, and they started asking questions, and they said, we will only believe if we see a miracle. And I said, well, you know what? That's not how it works. Like, that's not the way Jesus works. I'm sorry. And right at that moment, there's a guitar sitting across the campfire pit, and the guitar strums this loud strum, like, like this. And the boys were like, that guitar just played itself. And I was like, oh boy, I guess God does work like this. And so, the, uh, the boys prayed and received Jesus, and I was amazed. I'm just like, this does not seem to fit what I see in Scripture, and I was a little bit uneasy about it. On Saturday morning, one of our leaders called me and said, man, I got some bad news. Those Lake Country boys, they were at a party last night, and they were so drunk. And I called them, and I just said, hey, what's going on? Do you guys want to come to church with me on Sunday? And they were like, no, nah, we don't want to go to church. And I kept calling them and kept inviting them. And they wanted nothing to do with Jesus at all. It was a one-time thing. They had decided to follow this Jesus who was sort of a genie. But they didn't want the real Jesus. They wanted him to be their savior, but not their Lord and savior. It's a radically different thing. 
And we've seen this all the time. People make decisions to follow Jesus, but then they fall away really quickly. They never actually follow him. We've all seen this in our lives, haven't we? We've all been to camps. We've all been to places where people receive Christ. And we've also seen what appears to be mature followers of Jesus fall away as well. That's hard to understand. Maybe even leaders in our church, they walk away from Christ. People seem to lose their faith all the time. So then, here's the vital question. If we are supposed to have the helmet of salvation, can you lose your faith? Can you actually decide not to follow Jesus and no longer be one of his children? That's the important question. Can I lose my salvation? And remember, only secure relationships can flourish. The question that people all throughout Scripture have asked Jesus is, what does it look like to follow you? And is this secure and is this eternal? And the answer is 100%. You cannot, under any circumstance, lose your salvation. It's a resounding and overwhelming no. This is an eternal, 100% secure relationship. Let me explain. We were at a conference Actually, we weren't at a conference. We held a conference here in Kelowna about 15 years ago. And it was called the House Party. And we invited every single youth kid in Kelowna. We rented Prospera and we filled the thing. This thing was 7,000 kids full. And what happened was one of the bands never showed up. And so only their trumpet player showed up. And it was not a very good start to a house party. Basically, the trumpet player came and played O Canada. And the kids are like, what kind of house party is this? Then the next band played like a couple songs because they weren't the headlining band. Then the speaker, this is all we really had going for us, was the speaker. And he went up there and for an hour, it was just hellfire and brimstone. It was just, it was just don't go to hell message. And this person in front of me said this. I'll never forget. He turned to his wife and he said, this will scare the hell out of them. And I thought to myself, oh man, what are we doing here? Jesus never ever used the fear of hell as an evangelistic tool, ever. Because in order to avoid hell, it is self-preservation. It is still selfish at its core. And what happened was, Probably thousands of students went forward to receive Jesus. Thousands went forward. And then at the end of this thing, I got the list of the kids, and I I got several hundred to call, and I called them all to say, are you guys interested in coming to our youth group? Are you interested in follow-up? And not one single kid from that event wanted anything to do with us or the church or Jesus at all. We went to a church service in Los Angeles, and there was this smiling preacher. He preached this super positive message about, it was called, The power of positive thinking. And I'll tell you what, it was a good message. This guy was weaving stories in and out. The people were into it. People were just giving him amens and my, my, my's and just fanning this guy from the audience. It was raucous in this place. And then he invited people forward for salvation. Tons of people did. And he said this, he said, now your names are written in the book of life. That's what he said. But the only problem was he never once mentioned the name of Jesus at all. Not once. But yet he told every single person that now they are saved. I don't know who gave him the pen to the book of life. But the scene is repeated all over our continent. People are talked into praying the sinner's prayer so Jesus will make their life better. Then they walk down the aisle to some emotional music. And this is what it looks like to them. 
And I understand it. There's such tremendous pressure on our churches and ministries to get results. To announce great numbers of salvations that we often water down the call and get people to pray a sinner's prayer that exists nowhere in all of Scripture. With last century's mass evangelism came a watering down of this call. There was this need to formulize what it looks like to follow Jesus. So if we can simply make a simple connection between Scripture, present a simple gospel message, and make people respond and come forward or put up their hand, this equals conversion, and this is how we will quantify it. That is very troublesome. A.W. Tozer says, to make converts, we're forced to play down the difficulties and play up the peace of mind and worldly success enjoyed by those who accept Christ. As a result of this, as they followed people who made these confessions of faith publicly, they found that 92% no longer consider themselves Christians only six months later. 92% no longer Christians six months later. This is crazy. So it really provokes the question, what does it look like to follow Jesus? And if it seems like so many people are falling away, can you not then lose your salvation? Have we changed what it actually looks like to follow Jesus in the first place? This is a a funny little video. Check this out. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guys, right? Say no more. If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we'd sure like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. Me Church, where it's all about you. Man. In China, that's how they view the church in the West. They, they no longer invite American pastors to speak in their churches because they only preach simple bless-me truths and prosperity doctrine and pop psychology and self-help more than they actually preach the power of the gospel. They say that we have a form of godliness but deny its power. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you must take up your cross. You must die to yourself. Lay down your life. Because if you want to find life, you've got to lose it. You've got to give it up. This is what Jesus says. What does that even mean? Jesus took up his cross. What did that look like? See, Jesus, compelled by love for us, willingly laid down his life to gain the greatest victory over death and sin. That's what it looks like. To lay down our crosses, it means compelled by love for our creator. We willingly lay down our lives to gain victory over death and sin. That's what it looks like. 
It says, my future is now yours. I lay it down. My motivations are not mine anymore. They are yours. The purpose for my life is not my kingdom, but your kingdom. This is what it looks like. It is a laying down of life because in order to be born again, you have to die first. This is the symbol of baptism. Paul said, it is no longer I that live, but Christ in me. When we're baptized, we die with Christ. We're actually buried. It's a symbol of burial where Joel Fetterson is dead. And it is a symbol that is saying, just as Christ overcame the grave, I am too. And I am coming back to new life. But the difference now is that I'm not my own Lord. Jesus is my Lord. This is the symbol. Because in order to be born again, you have to die. John 3 says this, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but flesh is temporary, isn't it? Flesh is decaying. Flesh will turn to dust. But spirit gives birth to spirit. Spirit is eternal. Once you are born again, that is eternal. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. This is permanent. You cannot ever be unborn again. The very nature of our salvation is that it is permanent. You can only die once. Eternal life starts immediately, not when you get to heaven. If you lay down your life and you're a new creation, eternal life starts now. Jesus says that we're born into the unperishing. We're a new creation. The old is gone. It is not sleeping. It is gone. The old is gone and dead, and it is never coming back. Romans 8.38 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor present nor the future. See, these are the things that can't separate us from God. The future can't separate us from God. We can't walk away from our salvation nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, once you are born again, nothing can separate you from him. It is like my children. They will always be my children. We are adopted. No matter what my kids do, they are always my children. No matter how much they sin against me, they're my children. They are mine forever. God disciplines those that he loves And I will discipline my children, but they're still my children. You're probably thinking, man, what about the people that I have in mind right now? We're all thinking of people right now. And we're also thinking of different scriptures. We're saying, well, what about the rest of the Bible? Aren't you you just reading one perspective to this point I have? (laughs) Hebrews 6 is one of those verses that makes us sweaty, (laughs) that we lap in bed at night thinking about. This is what it says. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Wow. It's impossible for them if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. To their disgrace, or sorry, to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. 
Land that drinks in rain, often falling on it, that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives a blessing from God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Whoa. Even though we speak like this, beloved, we're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. This is terrifying. We've all misrepresented Jesus in this room. We've all publicly disgraced him in one way or another. We're all sinners. We have a lot in common. We all have a sinful nature and we've all fallen short. And we've all rebelliously chosen sin. And at one time or another, we have fallen away in as much as we have acted against his will and plan for our lives. But Paul is not talking to born-again Christians in this passage. This passage is not at all in reference to God's children. This is the book of Hebrews, and the Hebrews are Jewish people who are not born again. If you read the book of Hebrews, all throughout the passages, they come to church, they come to hear about Jesus, they're interested, they're intrigued, but they consistently go back to the temple. And Paul, who is presumably the author of Hebrews, consistently says, why are you doing this? When are you going to commit? When are you going to go all in? When are you going to lay down your life? They believe in Jesus, but they're not taking up their crosses. They're not going all the way. Let's look at some of the language here. It says this. It says that they were enlightened. Often, we read the word enlightened and we think this means that they're born again. But enlightened in all of Scripture never means born again, ever. It means you know more about Jesus, you have greater insight, you have greater doctrinal knowledge. The Greek word is photizo, which refers to doctrinal knowledge. It does not refer to salvation. It says they've been enlightened. They know more, their doctrine is great, but guess what? They're not getting there. It says they've experienced the powers of the coming age, What about that? This is the age to come. Paul is referring to the millennial age, the thousand-year reign when Jesus comes and there'll be no demons, there'll be no sickness, there'll be no death. He's speaking of the fact that they healed people, that they casted out demons. Does that necessarily mean somebody is saved or born again? You cannot be saved and move in these gifts. Judas did this. He was not born again, and he moved in these gifts. Sceva's sons, same thing. The disciples did. They were not born again, and they were healing people. It wasn't until Jesus resurrected and breathed in them the Holy Spirit that they received the Holy Spirit. Prior to that, they were moving in the Spirit. The rest of the followers of Jesus were casting out demons in healing prior to Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon them. You can move in the spirit and not necessarily be saved. But what about this? It says they tasted the heavenly gift. They tasted it. What does that mean? In that culture, before you would eat anything or drink water, because there was no refrigeration, because the standard of cleanliness was so low, you would take it in your mouth and you would taste it. You would swish it around a bit before you committed to swallowing to see if what was in your mouth is palatable. They tasted, but they only tasted. Judas tasted the Holy Spirit. He heard the best preaching ever, did he not? He was with Jesus, but he only tasted. He never drank of the living water. 
Judas loved himself and he loved money way more than Jesus. He was the treasurer and he was skimming cash and he chose 30 pieces of silver over Jesus himself because he just tasted. The Jewish people, they believed he was was the Messiah. They acknowledged him mentally, but they never drank of the living water. They came so close, but they always went back to the temple. They tasted life, but they did not drink of it. They were checking it out, but they were not committing. Then Jesus makes, sorry, that's John 10. Then Paul refers to something unbelievable. He says this, but beloved, we are confident for you. In scripture, when the word beloved is used, it only refers to the children of God, to those who were born again. Paul is saying there are those who are enlightened, who have tasted, who have seen. Then he says, but beloved. In other words, but children of God, I am confident for you. Beloved refers to his family, his kids. He's making a big disclaimer. He's saying, beloved, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, entered on our behalf. He is saying, don't just taste. Don't just know more about truth. If you are a child of God, I have hope for you. It is an anchor. Beloved, Jesus said this in John 10, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Listen to this. Let this sink deep into your soul and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. And then as if to strengthen this point, Jesus says, my father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of his hands. We are talking about the alpha and the omega. The book of Isaiah says that my hand stretches the universe. This is the hand we're talking about here. This is what Jesus is saying. My hand, but also my Father's hand. And I'll tell you what, no one can snatch you from my hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus says, my sheep will never perish. The word that he uses in the Greek is u-ma. U means no. Ma means no. It's the strongest form of no there is. He is saying, my sheep will no, no perish. My sheep will never, ever perish. They are imperishable. Once you are born again, it is secure. They will never, ever perish. This is huge. Your salvation is as safe as Christ himself. As he's praying to God, he says, and Father, I know that you love them, referring to us, his beloved, even as much as you love me. This is Jesus. He's sinless. But our salvation is as secure as his because we have taken his life, because we have made the big trade. But here is the issue, is that we see a lot of tasters in Canada. We see a lot of people who are enlightened in Canada. We see a lot of people who are fascinated with Christ. But like Judas or the rich young ruler, love themselves or things more. Those who have fallen away were not born again in the first place. Our fruit is the evidence of this relationship. Jesus tells a parable. He said, a farmer goes out and plants seeds. Someone on the path, and this was trampled upon, and birds came and ate it. 
Jesus explains it this way. He says that the devil takes the word from their heart. This is such a a strange introduction to this parable. This has nothing to do with the person who received the seed. This has everything to do with spiritual warfare. This has to do with the church and how much we pray and how much we take spiritual warfare seriously. On our LA trip, there was a group of boys who came and they were fascinated with Jesus. They were enlightened. They were tasters. But they were sort of hard-hearted. And they came and they witnessed unbelievable things. On Skid Row, there was a man in a wheelchair and some of our kids prayed for him and the man got out of his wheelchair and walked and then sold his wheelchair. A couple kids on our team were miraculously healed of broken legs. This was an unbelievable thing and these boys watched countless miracles but were still hard-hearted. Friday night, we went to a prayer house. We walked in the back door. The second they walked in the door... These boys were overcome by the power and love of their Savior. And they fell right there and they just started weeping. And they gave their lives to Jesus right there in the foyer. This place was so bathed in prayer that they were so compelled to willingly lay down their lives for Jesus. No miracle can ever do that. This is why Jesus says a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none I will give. No miracle can do that. This is a spiritual transaction. And that's why we as a church have to be a praying church. This room has to be bathed in prayer. Our children have to be bathed in prayer. Our town has to be bathed in prayer. This is why Willow One Prayer is so important to our church. Everything else we do is just stuff. It's not by might nor by power that we do, but it's by the Spirit of God, is it not? Who cares what we do as a church? Who cares if we have great music or speaking or a cool building. It means nothing. Because at the end of the day, if we produce seeds and the devil comes and snatches them away, what was the point in the first place? Then he says, some fell upon the rocky soil and it springs up fast with joy, but it has no root. And we see this a lot. Kids come to camp. They're excited. They follow Jesus. But I got to wonder, are they converting to Jesus, or are they just wanting to be a part of this community? Is it just simply love that they're receiving here? We see this a lot in the Jehovah Witness Church, don't we? They have a strategy that if you go to a hundred doors, that one out of a hundred will convert to this no matter what it is, because they're just simply lonely and just want community. People will convert to anything if they're lonely enough. But that's not what Jesus is calling us to, is he? He's calling us to a true, real salvation where we lay down our lives and be born again. Sometimes these people who are converted to community or family or even a position end up becoming leaders or pastors or even elders. They love the benefit of people respecting them and loving them. And then they decide down the road that this is not for them. They were never born again. And then we're like, man, but I thought you couldn't lose your faith. Jesus says some fell upon the thorny soil, but the life got choked out by pleasures and worries. And this is Kelowna, is it not? Pleasures and worries? This is Judas. I mean, he's with the one who fed the 5,000. He's with the ultimate provider in Jesus. But yet he's worried about his finances 
in that he has to steal from Jesus? He's clearly more concerned about his finances than the one who provides everything. This is unbelievable to me, and we see this over and over and over in Kelowna. But then Jesus said, but then some seed fell upon the good soil. And the word he uses for soil is humus, which is the root word for humility. This desire to willingly lay down your life and to say, I am willing to lose my life. This is deep humility. Jesus said you've got to take up your cross, and this takes humility. This means that I am no longer my Lord. You're my Lord. Have you given your life to him? Have you surrendered who you're going to spend your life with in marriage? Have you surrendered how you're going to spend your money? Have you surrendered how you're going to live your life day to day? The ultimate symbol of this is baptism. And this is why it was so crucial for the early believers to get baptized. It signaled two important things. For starters, in that time, to go public in your faith meant that you might lose your life. It meant that you might be disowned from your family. And this was never meant to be a hidden private thing. It was always meant to be very public. So people would get saved and they'd say, well, let's go down to the river now because it is all pervasive in your life. This isn't just a private decision. This is public. It is big, and it might cost you your life, but it is worth it. Paul said, I consider my present sufferings not even worth comparing to the coming glory. Paul said, this will cost you, but man, is it a good trade for you. And secondly, it signifies that you are laying down your life, and you no longer live but Christ in you. It is the ultimate trade And let me encourage you, if you have laid down your life, if you have said, my life is yours, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God. Never, ever. Nothing can pluck you from his hand under any circumstance. You can walk through your life completely secure with the helmet of salvation, knowing that you are a child of God, and that that adoption is permanent and irreversible. This is the greatest news in the world. And this news also radically alters how we present Jesus, doesn't it? I think of the rich young ruler. As he comes to Jesus, he says, what must I do to be saved? He clearly is interested. And Jesus says, well, have you obeyed the commands? And he says, yes, since I was a kid. At that stage, most pastors would say, excellent, let's pray this prayer you're in. But Jesus wants to make sure that he lays down his life, that he takes up his cross, that he truly dies in order to be born again. He realizes that the thing that he will not be willing to lay down is his money. And Jesus asks him for it. He says, are you willing to die to everything? The rich young ruler went away sad because he wasn't willing to do that. This is the salvation where you're willing to give up everything. And let me encourage you. Perhaps you've never given everything to Jesus and said, I lay down my life that's yours. I'm following you. And maybe in the back of your mind, you're thinking, you know what? Jesus says, if I want to find life, I must lose it. But I I don't seem to have found life because I'm holding on to things and I haven't truly surrendered to him. Let me encourage you this morning to just surrender everything to Jesus. 
I'm not talking about praying the prayer of salvation again. Once you've given your life to Jesus, it is finished. You don't ever have to do that again. Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me, though. Every day. That means the decision that we made when we were young. That means that every morning we remake that decision. Our salvation wasn't in question, but our allegiance for that day is in question, is it not? Daily, every day we have to do this. And so for this week and this day, have you chosen to freely lay down your life, take up your cross, and say, I am with you, Jesus. I am with you. Let's just spend a few moments in prayer, just silent prayer, and just surrender your heart and your life to him, if that's what you want to do. And then we're going to worship, and we can just worship in freedom with the helmet of salvation firmly on, because we are his children, amen? We are his children. Let's just spend two minutes in silent prayer, and just lay down your life, and even start to name things that you need to lay down today and this week. Oh, Jesus, I thank you, God, that you gave me new life that is abundant, Jesus, that is immeasurably better than the life that I had prior to you, Jesus. I thank you, God, that, that I am born anew. I am a new creation, God, that I am born again to spirit, which is eternal, Jesus, I thank you for this family that you've given us and every person in this room, God, that you have adopted, that you have breathed your Holy Spirit into, God, and that our eternity starts upon that salvation moment, Jesus. God, I thank you that we don't have to be those who wander, God, that we have an anchor for our soul that is firm and secure. Jesus, I thank you that you protect our minds with this helmet, God. That despite the turmoil of this world, God, that we are firm and secure. That our Father is the King and He is eternal. And nothing can pluck us from His hands. Jesus, I thank you for the truth of your word. God, I thank you for the direction of, in our lives, God. I thank you that you are our Lord. That you are worthy to be followed that you are a wise king, that not only do you love us, not only are you sovereign, but you have good plans for us, God. I thank you, Jesus, and I pray that you would just give us an unbelievable freedom this morning, God, that we could live lives completely free from 
anxiety, Jesus. Because you are the good shepherd and you desire that we walk by still waters and lay down in green pastures, God. And you want to restore our souls. Jesus, I pray that as we trust you daily and lay down our lives daily and trust you daily, God, that we would walk in the freedom that you promised, God, because it is our inheritance as your children. God, I thank you that you have given us the greatest gift in the world, God, and that you've given us the greatest news in the world to share with the world, God. Help us steward that well. Help us be a church, God, that represents you accurately in this valley. And God, we just worship you now and we thank you. Amen.